Welcome to Tailboard Talk, a fourth shift fitcast. The mission of Tailboard Talk and the fourth shift fitness is to educate and train fire service personnel to increase durability and decrease the potential for injuries and their associated costs. My name is Chris Morella, owner and founder of Fourth Shift Fitness. I'll use my experience as a personal trainer, strength coach, and 15-year veteran of the fire service to deliver tips, tricks, lessons, and information specifically geared towards the health and wellness of firefighters and paramedics. Each episode, you'll leave with immediate deliverables that will improve performance and resilience and keep you in the fight through your career and into retirement. Let's get into it. like the Tupperware bin with all the metals and stuff in it the other day. Yeah. And I put post-it notes on them and kind of tape on them to tell me what it was. Sure. I don't remember. I don't remember more than half of those things. Sure. I, I have zero memory of so many of them. I have memories of like uh, Fishers, Indiana for some reason. Yeah. That was a good um, one. Just, just like random other ones. Like, but for have for done 13 of them, I remember surprisingly few of those things. I remember, the anxiety and like not wanting to do them minutes before <laughs> the go. And I remember throwing up after every single one, but for like the actual events, I remember like nothing. Yeah. That was one thing that, um, when I was at NIU and, uh, his name's Kevin Tejal. He was a world champ a couple times over. He used to come and train and he used to always say it never, never lessons. You're always standing at the bottom of the tower wondering why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> exactly. It. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it's your first time or you're in line for a world championship run. It's just, you know, that that red line you're going to push hurts, hurts bad, <laughs> regardless where you're calibrated to have your 10, that red line hurts and you can't wait to get done. But after you do, there's no feeling like it. Well, I mean, maybe like half an hour after you're done, there's no feeling yeah. like it. <laughs> And I was just talking to Wagner about this the other day because he's getting all itchy again for some reason. Good. Not now. And I told Good. him, I, I will. be a train whip. <laughs> I can't find anyone to train with. I told him I would, I, in a second, I would do a tandem and I would do a relay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I can be, I mean, what's a tandem? That's 40 seconds worth, maybe. Sure. Less than that, maybe. I can push red line for 40 seconds, but pushing red line for a minute, uh, 20 or a minute 40 or whatever is it's a different game altogether that's yeah. like a that's like a 5k versus a marathon you know yeah and the the dichotomy is the worst the worst shape you're in the longer it lasts <laughs> so <laughs> it's like that's so sweet. it's like this, there's a punishment for trying you know it's like i, yeah. wanna, I remember my, my first combat challenge when i was at sterling fire department was with potsy from byron and i think my time was like a 337 or something that's and I a lot of time to think about it i just remembered nothing in my life has hurt this bad for this long <laughs> i could i could i could gut through so many things in life now after just doing this oh for three god. and a half minutes <laughs> dude oh my god one of my i actually do so there's one part i remember in lexington but there's one guy walking around the entire time there's like 30 of them shirtless chiseled you know just Abercrombie model kind of guy and uh he must have been like six feet six one and of this group of dudes i think they're from georgia everybody was like whoa that that's like the all-star team over there blah 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 and we get going and i'm up against this guy in the individual you know and i'm like he's gonna make me look stupid 
-hmm. like i'm just bummed out before we start i'm like (laughs) you drove all this way for me to get embarrassed you know (laughs) and we start going and i am leading him going up the tower i'm like okay well this is he's playing me you know Mm-hmm. And then I'm leading him coming out of the tower and I'm like, okay, he's going to turn around and just smoke me here. And then we're, I'm leading him going to the hose pole. I'm like, I might beat this guy. And, uh, I beat him to the dummy. He picks it up really fast, but I can see him. I'm, I'm like 10 feet in front of him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I made, I made the mistake, dude. I looked backwards like 15, uh... 20 feet from the finish line and I tripped and fell and he just, he passed me. And it took another like two minutes for me to go that 20 feet because I was so tired and like, so just, and it must've taken me another minute and a half or two. I think they started the next one almost while I was still finishing the dummy drag. Cause I was just like, whatever, just get this thing across the line. Sure. Once you're off the rails, it's hard to get back on. Oh, so frustrated. And I was, uh, that was going to be like the shining moment in my entire athletic career is this like supermodel type of guy with all the muscles <laughs> in the world. A little dumpy me with a big forehead was going to, was going to take him down, you know, but yeah, that, that, happened. that happened to me in Milwaukee after I had the, uh, re-aggravation of the, uh, back injury in 2013 and came back mm-hmm. to Milwaukee in 2014 and it was just hell all over again. And I was just like, just don't, don't fall, don't fall. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember if, I don't remember what it, you know, you don't remember anything that's going on while it's happening. I just remember, it? Yeah. I just remember that the dummy was sliding a little bit. I tried to adjust so it wouldn't fall. I fell. And it was just like a half an hour later. I finally got that thing across the finish line. Yeah. <laughs> it it might've been, yeah, it might drag- have been literally half an hour later. <laughs> dragging him by his foot. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. God, dude. So we're, so what we've never done though, because here's what I knew about you when we started training was you wanted to come out and train with us, which I was like, that's cool. Um, cause we were getting pretty sick of, each, sick of each other. And I knew that you were a strength coach at NIU. Um, and then I knew, I think just from talking to you that you were a power lifter and then mm-hmm. you were a firefighter once and then again, but it was all fragmented. It was all very fragmented, sure. the history. So sure. why don't you start over as far back as you think is pertinent and take me through like how you got to what us talking today. Sure. Growing up, uh, I'm from the east side of Detroit originally. Uh, when I was growing up, I had a speech impediment. I stuttered super, super bad. Hmm. And I remember sitting there one day with my mom. We are watching Conan the Barbarian, or Conan the Barbarian was on TV. And I eventually got it out. I asked her the question. I said, Mom, why does he never speak? And she says, because when you have muscles that big, you don't have to talk. Oh, man. <sighs> Sign me up, light bulb yeah, goes off. <laughs> you know, so here I am, uh, you know, the kid going to elementary school, getting picked on all day, and just anxiety about everything because you can't even communicate because you're stuttering. And here, all I have to do is get big muscles. Let's do this. So literally, she saw me uh, filling my Star Wars ad at with action figures, trying to bench press and lift it up off the floor and put it up <laughs> over my head. And she takes me to Sears the next day, and we get uh, the Weeder Junior Barbell set two four pound sand filled weights on each side. And, you know, that's, that's literally how I started appreciating what strength training and weightlifting was. Wow. So for however many years, all the way up to high school, it was just working out uneducated, undirected, just whatever we did in the basement. And then, um, I was a lifeguard in high school and one of the supervisors there saw that I was training at the local gym and he's like, what are you doing? And I just, you know, spewed out whatever was in the last issue of flex or muscle and fitness or whatever. And he's like, well, you train hard, but there's no direction. Why don't you do something 
with some purpose. Let's let's do something with it. I'm like, okay. And uh, in Romeo, Michigan, they used to have a, uh, or they may still have it, the Peach Festival. There's a bench press competition. So here I am, you know, soaking wet, 140 pounds, high school mat, and we trained for a bench press competition. And at the end of that summer, we went and and I got my first trophy. That wasn't just a participation ribbon or a medal from marching band. Hmm. So that was just epic that all these years I had been training, lifting to try to be good at a sport and it ended up that lifting was my sport. How old were you when this happened? 16. So I had, wow. I had just drove, just, just got my license, just got a car. God bless your mother for uh, pointing you in the right direction. I mean, that's a fantastic lesson. Yeah, that was, that was that was profound. You don't have to talk as long as you have big muscles. Oof. Well, if I went by that logic, I'd be the skinniest guy ever because uh, <laughs> gladly it's not an inverse relationship with that, uh, that connection. So, so that was your first one. Where'd you go from there at, at the age of 16? So at, at that point I was hooked. It was um, find out when the next competition was. And over the course of, I want to say two years uh, and pretty much between my junior and senior year, just started looking for local competitions and powerlifting USA was a real popular magazine at the time that has been published for a number of years now, but in the back was a, a calendar going out at least 12 months of upcoming meets. So you literally could look for a meet basically almost any weekend of the year, as far as you were willing to travel. There were the YMCA competitions, the local competitions. There were so many federations, you couldn't keep track of them. And you just had to say, all right, I want to train eight weeks out, 12 weeks out, or my training cycle is going real good right now. Let's find something to hit next weekend, you know, and you go from there. So the, the regular one was the Peach Festival. Started traveling down to Ohio, Indiana uh, to compete in other ones. And my senior year, I forget which competition qualified me for it, but I got contacted by Team USA through uh, the United States Powerlifting Federation for a Team USA trip over to Finland and Sweden. So we went to Helsinki, Finland, and then we went to uh, Stockholm, Sweden. And uh, it was really cool. They had, a, they, had, they had really cool sporting facilities over there and training institutes. And uh, it was a real, real good experience. And then that kind of opened up my eyes to like, wow, I went from literally not having anything that had a sense of pride in a sense of self-worth, a sense of setting goals and working hard towards them and actually having it come to fruition. And now here's something I have that, you know, it's, it, it's not only healthy, it's not only something that a lot of people want to do and can't do, but it's something that could take me internationally to have great experiences, meet great people. And it only goes up from there. It's pretty awesome, man. That's a, that's an awesome world that I was never exposed to truly. I mean, I was around lifting and athletics my whole life, but the thought of actually doing powerlifting was never, never even on the radar. You know, I think it's a pretty special opportunity you got. Sure, it was. And at, at the time, you know, um, I grew up in a pretty, pretty good part of town with a lot of uh, good influences as, as far as friends. But as, as far as myself, you know, like I said, I was, the, I was a little kid that stuttered and went to speech therapy and all that, all that jazz. And it really didn't pan out well for me until I was in high school when I started lifting heavy. Hmm. And I actually made a correlation to myself. When, when you're lifting, pushing the weight, 
breath control, keeping the heavy rep moving, to me, struck a chord with how speech worked. So the same way that you would push out a heavy rep and use breath control and keep the breath moving, I made a correlation eventually to when I used to feel like I was about to get stuck on a word. I'd slow it down, use my breathing, keep it moving. And I basically taught myself not to stutter strictly just through a correlation that I had with lifting. So you'd almost grind through through the sticking point of a word the same you, way you would grind through the sticking point of a bench press. Correct. The same way that you know what the where your leverage is going to be at its weakest. And you really have got to make sure you're prepared to keep it moving. Proper, proper abdominal pressure and just keeping things moving and, and the right setup. Like even to this day, I still have a stuttering problem. And I can tell when it, when it wants to start acting up and when it doesn't. And it's just the recognition of knowing that, all right, it feels like it's going to be one of those days before you start a sentence or before you start something where you think you may have a little hiccup. You, you control your breathing, you keep it moving, you slow it down, you give yourself your own fluency, and you just push through it. Yeah. How far did powerlifting take you? Did you go through college with it? Did you go to college? I don't know much about your earlier years. So, so past the high school lifting, where'd you go? So right after high school, my, my senior year, the summer after my, my senior year, someone that I'm lucky enough to call a friend now, uh, Ed Cohn, probably one of the most famous powerlifters of all time. He's uh, out of uh, uh, Calumet City and yeah. out of Chicago. I uh, ordered his uh, Ed Cohn powerlifting VHS tapes, squat, bench, and deadlift. Awesome. And that, and that was the first time I was ever exposed to periodized training, figuring out weights and reps and auxiliary work and how to peak for a competition and taking all these things into consideration. And when I finally figured it out and started watching these tapes, it just blew my mind. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me that the effort can now be put into this action with this science and this is going to be the result. And I religiously watched those videos before every workout, before bench day was the Ed Cohen bench press workout tape before squat really? day, was the Ed Cohen squat tape before deadlift day was the Ed Cohen deadlift tape. Yeah. Did that for two week years. after week. Yeah. Week after week. Wow. And, and it's just my, my whole world revolved around going to community college training and then whatever jobs I had at the time. So that's when it really took off. And in 1996, I qualified for the American Powerlifting Federation Junior Nationals, and it was in Aurora. And at that time, it was when I had first really started making gains above and beyond what the normal gym rat was. I still remember one of my first workouts where I had done a competition, rode up the cycle, and I couldn't wait for weeks eight, nine, and 10, because week eight was 335 for three. And I'm like, there's no way I'm going to put three plates on the bar and hit it for three. And then as the weeks were creeping up, I'm like, dude, this is going to be sweet. I think I can do it. And I just remember thinking, I can train with three plates on each side now. Wow. And that was just like one of those milestones in the head for, you know, and at, at the time, my amateur career at best was very, very amateur, even leading up to junior world records and things like that. But for me, that was just a huge breakthrough. And I just remember thinking, I, I'm starting to handle weights now that legitimately could be considered powerlifting meat caliber. So I went to uh, APF Nationals 
and I don't remember exactly what my lifts were, but I was in the 181-pound uh, weight class at that time, and I won that year. And I got really close to Ed Cohn's teenage world bench press record at that meet. Wow. And a few months earlier, I was still in the 165-pound weight class, and I did uh, a meet in Walled Creek, Michigan, and I set a teenage world bench press record 365 or 165 and got best lifter. Holy cow. And after that meet, I thought, well, I'm going home, and for a change, it's not with a second or third place trophy by itself. It's, you know, I'm starting to get to where I can actually compete. It was, it was one thing. It was amazing to be able to be part of a community and compete and legitimately compete and train and have goals and achieve them and have trophies and, you know, you know your friends, you know, you stop by their house and they've got trophies with baseball players or basketball players on them. Mine had weightlifters on them. Yeah. So it was, it was, you know, it was that level. But after, after that meet, I thought, you know, let's, let's do something with this. So literally life became just training community college and, uh, you know, just training for the next competition. Were you training at a powerlifting gym? Did you have the right equipment, the, the right people around you, or were you using just generic equipment at the, the wire at the community college and then applying Ed Cohn stuff to it? I was training at a local gym that was around forever. Unfortunately, it, it dissolved quite, quite some years ago after 2000, but it, there was a East side gym on, uh, in East Detroit, Michigan. It moved around a couple of times and it was one of those hole in the wall, just blue collar, hardcore gyms where you went inside and, you know, the dumbbell racks started at 50 and went up to 150 and they had the power of power lifting racks and the place was just a dungeon it was great so that's where that's where everything kind of found its foundation and grew from and then when i started getting competitive it had moved across town closer to where i was at and i had some workout partners and as they saw that i had organized workouts and they were working and i was starting to compete i had a bunch of workout partners and it was great but then once i started competing and going to national competitions breaking world records um I, I just knew that it it wasn't from any fault of the guys that I was training with, but I just needed to hang around with big dudes that moved big weight. So I wasn't the top dog. I, I didn't want to get happy where I was at. So there was uh, a Motor City Barbell Club that was around for a while. There was a lot of my uh, friends that I'm still friends with that power lifted at the time. Started training with them at a gym called the Weight Station. And that that helped immensely. I mean, you're, you're not just in a gym now that's hardcore, but you're in a hardcore gym. Now you're surrounded by everybody that's bigger than you and stronger than you. So you had no choice, but to get stronger. Wow. Yeah. And that, uh, that, that turned out really well. And see, it was 97. I went away to college at Western Michigan university. And my top priority at that time was setting up the weight room in the living room and trying to organize a power. Lift. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So, put the flyer out at the rec center that um, was embarrassing at first. And you could, you could tell I didn't have much of an education at that time. It said, think you're strong, prove it, join the Bronco powerlifting team. And I spelled your Y-O-U-R. So all around campus was everybody uh, writing apostrophe R-E at the end of my sign. <laughs> yeah. But anybody who was strong and didn't pick out that mistake is the kind of person you want Go exactly. come to your barbell club. Like yeah. they just bring the flyer with me. Like I saw this and I love it. You're like, oh, you're my guy. That's who yeah, I'm exactly. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So uh, at that time, made made some real good friends while I was there, and uh, they've all gone on to either be strength coaches or one of them started his own 
strength equipment company on the West Coast just relocated to Las Vegas. And it was a, it was a blast because, again, you hear now I'm pulling from a population of college students. Most of them were at least of the mindset that they were goal-oriented, want to go. They, they, they wanted to achieve things higher than just the norm and stick that out there in the rec center. And I had a good group of four or five guys and uh, the occasional woman wanted to come and train and train for a meet. And, and uh, it, was, it was a good time. While I was there, we, um, we won APF uh, team championship with uh, four guys. And so how many years did, were you competitive and was that leading up to your, your junior nationals or wh- where are we in your overall career of powerlifting? That led to what, that, what right now the timeline, we're at Western Michigan University. So I had the powerlifting team working at a local gym. Um, I got a sponsor. Uh, I was working at a gym at the time, a real good friend of mine, uh, Jamie and his wife, Tracy owned a gym in town and they had a client came in that was a friend of Jamie's family. And he's, he was an older gentleman. He was in his, 60s and he said uh yeah i got a ankle graft a knee transplant and uh my cardiac doctor says i might have some issues going on he wants to train me at the time (laughs) i was i was his only personal trainer with liability insurance (laughs) through the nsca so he's like uh matt will train you wow and uh him and i ended up being really good friends but at the time i was training for i was training for the 1999 well world championships in Graz. And I was late for one of our appointments because I was out trying to pick up scrap metal to help put additional money towards my trip. And I remember going to the gym and he was just livid with me. And here's a guy, he's a self-made millionaire, owns a company. So you imagine he sits on top of the, you know, hierarchy, like, like the guy in charge, obviously. Hmm. And he was a little, little angry with me. And he's like, why, why did you wait for the appointment? And I said, well, <clears throat> scrap and metal i got a competition and at the time we had a very surface level professional relationship it wasn't really a get to know you very well point in establishing a relationship so he pulls out his wallet he counts a stack of hundreds or twenties whatever he had and he goes i don't think i have enough he goes how much do you need for this trip and i go well airfare is probably this and you know, squat suit, that shirt. And he goes, just, just give me a number. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave him a number and he wrote me a check right there at the front desk of the gym. And he folds it in half, puts it in my hand. He goes, don't you ever be late for one of my workouts every day. Another life changing moment, man. Yeah, exactly. Well, this guy, he's a, he's a solid dude. It's a, uh, he did so many good things wow. over the, over the next couple of years, just trying to help me out. And, you know, not, not just for the sake of doing nice things for me, but he, he, he always had a greater good type of, uh, type of mentality when he's thinking Mm -hmm. about things, you know, just long story short, he did that. And then to show my appreciation, I I think he came in at, I want to say either 63 or 65 years old. Mm -hmm. And over the course of a couple of months, he just always wanted to have some upper body strength. So we got to where he could bench press 135. Nice. When we first started talking, I'm like, what would you like to do? What would make you think that you are strong? You've accomplished something. He goes, I want to put two of those big suckers on the side of that bar and be able to do it. You know, mm-hmm. so he, he didn't know what the weight was. He just knew those were the biggest plates in the gym. I want to be able to come in and stick one of those on each side and do it one time. Hmm. So over the course of a couple months, you know, obviously we trained 
for fitness and a lot of other things. And we got to the point to where he didn't just have to ride the recumbent bike. He could walk on the treadmill and do the treadmill and things like that. But we got to the point to where one day, a couple of weeks before my competition, I had a faux uh, world championship for him where he went up and he was doing attempts and we had a blast with it. And he ended up doing at least 135. I think he did a little bit more. But anyway, I had people taking pictures for me. So when I came back from my competition, I had a frame made that had three windows and the frame itself flipped. So you could look at three pictures on one side and three pictures on the other side. And on one side was, was a picture of me lifting, me at the podium with a medal, and then a picture of him and I doing something. And then you flipped over the frame and I had a picture of him lifting his 135, him and I standing in the hallway holding the medal that I got from the competition, him and I kind of holding it together, and then another picture at the end of it. Wow. And so it was just kind of one of those cool gifts where you could flip over and see, you know, the both sides of that relationship was I was working towards this, he was working towards that and that time and on our both of our timelines we achieved it. I mean, I'm sure he for somebody with all the money in the world, suppose you know, seemingly I'm sure that that struck more of a chord than anything for him. Sure. And it was it was one of those things that, that we shared. I mean, to this day I can you know, recall it back perfectly. It was just, it was a profound point in my life also because I, I knew that at that point I was young in life, young in my career, healthy, strong. And he would always talk to me during the workouts and he would always say, Don't take this for granted. You know, as good as good as you feel right now and as good as you could move, not that I could ever move well, don't take <laughs> don't take it for granted because time's gonna get you. Yeah. And uh yeah. So at, at that point was uh, towards the end of being at Western Michigan. So I was working towards a bachelor's in exercise science, minor in psychology. Originally, I was going to go to school to be a chiropractor. One of the fields of study you could have a bachelor's in and apply for chiropractor school was an exercise science type degree. So towards the end of the exercise science degree, one of the requirements was you had to do an internship. And I knew a guy named Mark Philippi, who used to do the World's Strongest Man competitions a while back in the 90s. He was the head strength coach at UNLV in Las Vegas. And I got a hold of him and I'm like, I'd really like to come and do an internship with you. I got to do it for my degree, this, that, and the other. And he's like, uh, yeah, sure, no problem. So I'm sitting there weighing all the options of all these different internships I could do. And I'm like, hmm, let's see. I think one of the options was Purdue. And I'm like, let's see. Spring semester, winter in Indiana, or winter in Las Vegas? <laughs> Indiana, for sure. Yeah, exactly. You know, I yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't want to get soft and run away from the cold and all the lake effect snow. But That's right. Yeah. So uh, so that, it was just opportunity after opportunity. And again, wow. this is so early in my career, so early in life. It's just all these things to me. I'm just like, it, it, it just kept getting ingrained that if you, you know, stay focused, you move forward, you work hard doors open. So um, I literally had no idea how far Las Vegas was. I looked at a map of the US and I'm like, oh, it can't be that far. It's just over there. <laughs> so I hopped in. Um, oh, here's another great story. When I was driving around scrapping all that metal, I had this old Chevy S10 four-speed bench seat pickup truck just rattling around Kalamazoo because you know muscle heads, they didn't care what they were driving. They just needed something to get up at the gym at home. Yep. So I'm talking uh, with a guy at the gym one day that owns one of the local mechanic shops. And I'm like, hey, I need to be able to get my pickup truck to go cross country. 
and I remember Ed, he's the guy that I trained that paid for all. Uh, basically, his his company sponsored me. He had T-shirts printed up and all that stuff. Ed looks over at us and he goes, do you expect that to make it out of the state, let alone cross country in January? And I'm like, do you have a better idea? He's like, don't worry about it. I'll see you Tuesday. I'm Jeez. Like, I'm, I'm like, okay, I don't know what Ed's up to now, but it's figured out. So he comes in for the next workout and he's like, all right, I've got too many cars in my airplane hangar. Okay. One of the, <laughs> my son who's going to college and I think at the time was New Zealand. He's got a Jeep Cherokee Sport. He goes, it's used, but if you want to drive it, I'll let you use it. Yeah. And I'm just like, you, he's doing so many good things for me. I just can't say enough about this guy. And at the time, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I can't say no. So um, pack up the Jeep Cherokee Sport like most college students. I just opened the hatchback and just threw stuff in there until I couldn't see out any window except my, <laughs> my driver's side window and half the windshield. And left Kalamazoo, I think, at 11 p.m. one day and 36 hours later of driving with uh, nothing but uh, Diet Pepsi in the passenger seat. <laughs> Ended up in Las Vegas. Wow. Well, I think I think one of the bigger lessons in this is, I mean, you said that the opportunities are coming. And then when you got the, op- the chance to either ask or accept help, you were willing to do that. So there was a fair amount of not only doing the work, but kind of putting your ego aside and, and allowing people to help you too, which is probably what got you further than anything to be honest right sure absolutely and at the time you know if if at the time i was focused on my goals and if people in general are focused on your goals you can't help but to have your ego in check because if you're focused on a goal you have to recognize your weaknesses and your mm-hmm. strengths and you would be absolutely ignorant to not accept help where your weaknesses are right you know and and for me my weaknesses weren't of physical nature they were of a financial means they were you know the time i had available because of school obligations and work obligations so yeah so anytime uh there was there was help out there you know as long as i felt good about it you know i i, I didn't want to take hand out, handouts there you know i definitely wanted some type of relationship to where there was give and take and um yeah i just i, I just have met so many good people along the way at that point just staying focused and moving forward that um, it just, it, it, it just always felt like the right decisions were easy to make because they put themselves right in front of you. If you stayed the course. Yeah. That's a great lesson, man. It's yeah. a great lesson. I feel like a lot of people want to ask for whatever it is before putting in the prerequisite work, or like you said, establishing those relationships. And that's something I know I struggle with, with the online platforms and social media. And you almost have to ask first before you, you build that rapport. And it's really a really difficult mental hurdle to get through, you know. But, sure, yeah. it's a it's a it, it's a completely different world now. Yeah, completely different world. When I went to my first few competitions where I had to look for sponsors, I was walking from business to business, introducing myself to someone in charge, and explaining what was going on, and just putting it out there. Yeah, you can't, you know, there there was no blast emails. There was no, hey, check out my, you know, my gram. You know, yeah. there was there was none of that. Right. You know, and I I almost wish back then that things were as easy to record as they are now. Because back then, I, I tell you, I've got totes of training tapes, hmm. VHS training tapes, where we set up cameras to train our uh, to 
uh, record ourselves train, but it wasn't for posterity. It wasn't to put on the gram or Facebook. Right. It was to literally watch depth, speed. <laughs> you know, we were analyzing these tapes like coaches analyze game footage. Sure. You know, and if it was as easy to do back then as it was now, you know, I'd have plenty of memories to reflect on. Well, the good news is you can take that and put it on the gram now and you'll have not only yourself, but hundreds of other people coaching you of what you should be doing different or if you're definitely <laughs> good enough or a multitude of other things that you weren't even considering. So uh, I never got to that. <laughs> All right. So you're uh, now you're going to Vegas, right? You're going to start your internship with another mm -hmm. major, major name in the strength and conditioning world. And uh, that opened up a lot of doors also. Yeah. Up, up to that point, I really hadn't met too many people of, I would say, large stature, you know, because back, back then, you because you didn't have the social media you do now, you just saw the people in the magazines and what you heard and what you read and what you saw on, on tapes. There, there was no YouTube back then. There was no live feeds. If I wanted to watch the National Powerlifting Meet where Kurt Karwalski squatted 1,008, I had to wait for the production company to send out the order four or five months later. You know, there was no instant, you know, recognition. So up to that point, you know, you, you had the people that you looked up to, you had the people that were very well known for what they were doing. And then I go to UNLV and there's a guy that I watched on ESPN compete in the World Strongest Man competitions. And you walk in the weight room and there he is. And uh, he just, he just looks over at me and he goes, made it, huh? I'm like, yeah. He's like, there's a Starbucks across the street. Wow. Want to go get some coffee? <laughs> it's like, all yeah. right, this is how, this is how we're going to roll. So, but uh, yeah, that was, that was a great experience. And that was one of those situations where I, you know, you, you always heard it growing up, but I really put it to practice there. Mouth shut, eyes and ears open. Because he trained professional. I mean, he, he was, he was a, a well-known strength conditioning professional in Las Vegas before strength conditioning was a very well-known, very well-publicized career. So he had professional boxers coming in, professional athletes coming in. Uh, U.S. women's hockey team came in there when they were on tour one time. We got to work out it, and I got to spend some time with them. Uh, Charles Paulquin stopped by Alton, got, got to meet and talk with him a couple of times. Uh, Bill Kazmar did stop by. Great guy. He's, he's got some great stories. But this, 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 this whole time, I'm there, and every day I would come in and I don't know if it was Las Vegas or the opportunities I had in front of me, but I didn't need sleep <laughs> for those three months. It was like, I've got a three month internship in Las Vegas training at a division one athletic center designed by Mark Philippi, ran by Mark Philippi. And I'm an intern doing anything he needs me to do, but I also have access to ask him anything I want to do. And if I don't, Oh, I could just ask Charles Paulquin or Bill Kazmaier. Man, it is just, it's incredible. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, keep going. I just want to hear more about this, this experience. I mean, those are, <laughs> I'm sure you've, you've noticed it too, that strength and conditioning coaches in, in general are some of the most approachable and most open, like quote unquote celebrities ever, because they didn't necessarily do it to become a celebrity. But in the, in the circle of strength and conditioning, they're the, the top of the mountain, you know? So when you actually reach out to them and just shoot them, you know, uh, Instagram message or an email that it is insane how many will actually respond to you and open up a line of communication compared to like mm -hmm. an, like a pro athlete or um, a CEO of a corporation, you know, for some reason that strength and conditioning world is just 
incredibly accessible. Sure. And I think that says something about the mentality or the MO of strength coaches that make it to that level. They didn't get there by being self-serving, egotistical people out for their own betterment. You know, that literally that whole career is to help other people and not only help them, but train them at elite levels. And that elite level of training encompasses so many aspects of life that I can't imagine being a successful high level strength coach and not be Mm -hmm. a good person. You know, you can be a well-known strength coach and be an asshole, but (laughs) to be a, but to be a well-respected, well-regarded strength coach, that's highly successful somewhere on the inside. I mean, because people have called me every name in the book at one point or another, but I always had my athletes interests Mm. at heart, you know, as much as anybody that's competed, not even at a high level, because that just at a level that uh, tugs at their soul about just being something they're passionate about getting psyched up for, you know, a competition, a lift, a run on the course, whatever it is, I could get just as emotional and my eyes could glass up just as much before a football game or a wrestling match in anticipation of how much this athlete wants to do well as would happen before I would go and compete. Right. And I, and I think when you've got their best interest really coming from a deep place, that's when you get known as being a good strength coach. But that being said, let me not get too much on a tangent there. I think that's why they're the most approachable, uh, sorry, most approachable uh, open people there are because their whole MO is to help people. And if you know, you're asking good questions, that isn't the usual baseline opening line question that you could find out the answer just by Googling it real quick. Hmm. That's, that's what they live for, to have intelligent conversation with people that are either going to appreciate the information that you're going to give them or have an intelligent discussion that's, that you're both going to end up better at the end by having. Yeah, such an incredibly empathetic role that, like you're saying, when you, when you watch your client or your athlete or your training partner compete, you've, you've essentially embodied their success. And so mm-hmm. whether you've had success on a professional level or an amateur level, or even just a personal level in the past, you want them to feel that same level of euphoria and success and um, personal accomplishment that you felt and watching them go through whatever competition it is or event it is can be extremely taxing. Like you said, yeah, um, because you're, you're bought in, you're invested into them and, and you know what it feels like to do well and you want them to have that feeling. So give me a glimpse into UNLV's, I mean, you did already with the, the people rolling through there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what are we talking day in and day out? Like what's a, what's a day in the life of intern Matt? The internship was at the time, like most bachelor degree internships were, it was, it was uh, 12 weeks, 12 or 16 weeks. It was your last, last semester. And you had to keep daily notes of what you were doing. And I couldn't copy papers on the Xerox machine and write stuff down fast enough in the file cabinets were just workouts from this team, that team and the other, and this guy. And at the time there was a basketball strength coach there. His predecessor went to the Blazers. Uh, so he was always there sharing information and I'm just, I'm just writing this stuff down. Like it's gold. Cause someday I can at least refer to it and use it 
refer to it and saying, well, I guess that's why they don't use it anymore. <laughs> but um, uh, at the time, I had never known 6 a.m. workouts. Hmm. So it was it was new for me to wake up at five, be there by six for the early morning workouts. And like usual, it usually clear between seven and eight because classes started around eight. So you'd have the late morning lull. And every morning I'd walk across the street to Starbucks. I'd get uh, three venties of the day black one venti of the day bunch of cream bunch of sugar for the other assistant bring it back and we'd sit in Philippi's office and while he's talking about the day i'd be looking at the wall all these posters and articles about him and you know atlas stone in the corner of the office i'm just like this is this is surreal you you don't have to pay me just let me come back here every day yeah and and live somewhere i'll sleep under the stairs give me a place to shower let me train here it doesn't get any better than this and you know, lunchtime, the teams would roll in, roll out. Early afternoon would, have been a week, would be the time when we could train. And that was when I got to train with Mark Philippi. Are you kidding me? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> here's the guy. One of the powerlifting articles that I read and looked at his program was him deadlifting an 805 at the USAPL uh, Nationals or Worlds a couple of years before. So, you know, whatever I was, you know, deadlifting was three, four sets out from his work sets. But having people there that strong and one one thing it was it was good to see that they were humans yeah because one of the things you see sometimes and i spoke about this recently uh, with a friend of mine that wrote one of the books that i just keep reading over and over again is he had asked me what makes his book better than these other books that i said i didn't like as much and I said, you can relate to your book. And the fact that I could sit there with Mark Philippi and have conversations with him and hear that it was hard for him to get out of bed this morning too, mm -hmm. to hear that yesterday didn't go good, today's workout needs to be adjusted, or there's a competition coming up and these, you know, this, this, that, and the other, whatever the factors were, they were human factors. Because you see these athletes and it's like social media now, you only see people's best. Right. You don't know their worsts. He was a real person. And when we would go outside to flip tires or do Atlas stones or log presses or whatever we we're doing for the day, first of all, are you kidding me? I'm in Las Vegas. <laughs> Doing an Atlas stone tire flip workout with Mark Philippi while everyone is back in Michigan walking through two and a half feet of snow. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So at, at this point, the experience can't get, can't get much better. Yeah. And uh, we're just having great, great conversations almost daily. And sometimes I'd ask goofy questions and uh, he had a really good way of uh, giving you a really stupid look really quick, but then mm -hmm. getting off of it and answering your question well. And they used to like to tease me because one of the things that I did often when I still lived in East Detroit was I used to drive down to Columbus and train with Westside Barbell. So I did that a handful of times early in my powerlifting career as I started to make gains and actually get competitive. When everything was said and done, I ended up beating one of their guys. So he used to tease me a lot about going down to West Side. He'd be like, hey, what does Louie think about this? Or, what does Louie <laughs> think about that? And That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny because, because for the most part, he was, you know, traditional periodized training. Um, if, if anything that I, I can say that I got from Mark Philippi was work ethic. Hmm. I'll guarantee to this day, because people don't change at this deep of a level. He's one of the hardest training dudes 
ever, hmm. bar none. And I had came there for my internship right after he had his first knee injury. He was doing the, I think it was the, they were doing the car flip in Malta and they covered the, the course with sand. So you couldn't see the boards they were propping their feet on. And he slipped and sand the car flipped back on him and he had his leg bent behind him and popped his patellar tendon. Yeah. But when they went in and reattached it, they wrapped a cable around his humerus and his tib fib at the length that was the maximum allowable stretch for the patellar tendon while it was healing. Hmm. So he would literally be working out and you could hear the tug oh. when, when he got end range. Oh. And when he, when he would be doing leg extensions, uh, for, you know, PT afterwards or whatever, you could hear the tug or he'd, he'd be like, here, come here, feel this. And you'd feel the cable get tight. It was, just, it, was, it, was, it was surreal. But that also taught me that you can come back from catastrophic injury and that it's mindset and it's where are you refocusing, where, where are you working towards? And unfortunately, a few world's strongest mans later, he blew his other knee doing the Conan's wheel. Mm-hmm. But it was lather, rinse, repeat. And that work ethic to me was, it, it just, it, it didn't speak to me. It didn't do this. It didn't do that. It was just a no brainer. Why not be that way? Why not be the hardest worker in the room? You know, there, there's no reason to not be the hardest worker in the room for towards, towards anything. I mean, even if you're never going to do a world's strongest man competition again, even if you're not going to compete in powerlifting again or run a course, you know, not, not saying overtrain, not saying train to the point that you injure yourself, but if you're going to do something, do it with a level of confidence and with the conviction that you're all in. And that's just, that's just always how we train. And I just, during those three months, I just worked, worked as hard as I could. Um, to learn as much as I could. And at the end of my internship, Mark Philippi really threw a monkey wrench in my life's plans. Ed, the guy that owned the optical company that sponsored me, he was actually talking with me about building a corporate fitness center for me to come and run. And I was still toying with the idea of being a chiropractor and didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then here comes Mark Philippi and says, hey, if you want a job, after you graduate, you can always come back and work here. So uh, you know, I, I can't say can't say no to that. I mean, I was literally just thinking to myself, I'll work here for free. And here you're offering me a job. So I drove cross country again, packed up all my stuff after I graduated, drove back to UNLV for uh, uh, a summer off season. And because that, that the internship was during spring semester. He offered me a job for the summer to help train the football players and everyone else who was training. So I'm like, okay, so you're going to pay me to come back and build my resume and just learn that many more awesome things from you. Yes, absolutely. I think I was making a whole $500, $500 a month living in Las Vegas. Yeah. Then um, at, at the end of the summer, he offered me a full-time job on staff. And I couldn't say no to that either. You know, I got to know the athletes, got to know the town, got to make friends. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this. So drove all the way back to Kalamazoo to pack up the rest of my stuff and drive all the way back to Las Vegas again. And then luckily, uh, that was just one fall semester. End of that semester, the assistant there at the time got offered the head strength conditioning coach job here at NIU. And him and I had become real good friends and worked really well together. So he said, he was from Chicagoland originally. He goes, hey, I'm heading back 
to uh, Midwest, take this head coach, head strength coach job at Northern Illinois University. You want to come with? And I'm like, uh, yeah, let's do this. So that's how I got to NIU January 1st, 2000. Drove up to uh, DeKalb, Illinois and dropped my gym bags in his guest room and started my career here at NIU. I mean, talk about a stark comparison of Las Vegas to DeKalb. That was, yeah, well, I, growing up in Detroit and then going to Kalamazoo, which isn't the biggest town, but definitely not small by any means, sure. then going to Las Vegas for a year, literally, and yeah, and going from Las Vegas to DeKalb in <laughs> January of 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Very stark contrast. Man. So you get there and you're, you, did he give you the assistant strength coach job then? At the time, uh the son of Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield, was an assistant here under okay. the head strength coach that just left. So here's, let's make another connection. Let's meet uh, Dr. Squat, Fred Hatfield. Yeah. Yeah. And um, not only that, towards the end of the internship at UNLV, Mark Phillippe got me in contact with Ed Cohn. And I remember calling him one night and talking to him on the phone. And you want to talk about just starstruck, stuttering. I don't know what to say. You know, I like, I like your videos. Yeah, you're I, right. <laughs> I watch it every day. <laughs> yeah, I stronger now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was, that was great. So finally got got to come back to Chicago land. And, uh, you know, he was he was here. So at the time that the, the, the plan was to let him finish out his contract. And my boss at the time wanted to start to kind of incorporate his own staff, hire his own staff. And when we came out here, the weight room or the strength conditioning center was an old basketball gymnasium under the concrete west stands of Husky Stadium, which is now the wrestling room. So I was I was lucky enough in 2006 and seven to be able to design and build the Jordan Center strength conditioning room. But for those seven years, we were in an old basketball gymnasium that had carpet Oof. and old gymnasium. I don't even know what kind of lights they were, but they were the kind that when you first turn them on, they're like light green and they turn yellow and actually they turn white a few hours later. Yeah. But literally in the summer and uh, spring, Monday morning, we would come in and take wire brushes to the bars because rust would have formed on the bars over the weekend because there'd be so much moisture. Jeez. Yeah, there wasn't very good uh, elevation there. But uh, yeah, it was a stark contrast, not only from Las Vegas to DeKalb, but from the facilities we had at UNLV to what we had here. Right. Yeah, it was, it was walking into a big challenge. And that was that's probably where the first time um, I started to let my own training, I don't want to say suffer, but I didn't want to waste this opportunity. Hmm. And to me, if I put training on the wayside for a little bit, I would be able to get it back. Right. At least it was, it was how I was thinking and eventually did. But uh, so for the first year or so we were here, training, training kind of took a back seat. It was basically him and I. So it was two coaches. And really in college strength conditioning, I had one year of experience. So except for just knowing programming and things of that nature very well. I did not have much experience actually executing the duties of strength coach, organizing the weight room, organizing the flow, uh, 
being a people person talking with coaches that didn't see your way. And uh, so that was a year of adjustment. And so what was your, your total tenure at NIU? So I was at NIU from 2000, 2008. Okay. And those were some, probably some struggling times in the beginning of it, just as from a football perspective and a sports perspective, perspective, right? I, when, when I had got there, coach Novak had been back for a couple of years as the head football coach. And I want to say the biggest struggles at the time when I came back was facilities, recruiting. I mean, basically, at the time, and it's been so long since I've revisited talking about these things, but NIU wasn't known for being really good at too many things in athletics. Right. You know, coaches used it as a stepping stone, you know, to get into college athletics and then left. Athletes would come here if they couldn't get there or whatever. But I remember when I came here, I I really got along with Coach Novak and I really admired him as a coach because everything he said was along the same lines of things that I've I've heard along the way from coaches that I knew to be successful and just good people. Everything he wanted to do, he, he wanted to recruit from this area. He wanted to find athletic department support from this area he wanted to build up pride and achievement for this area and but yeah at at, at the time i mean we would have groups of recruits coming in and we'd be driving around campus on husky buses and the top of the seats would be ripped open and coaches would be pulling wads of foam like really this is what we're driving recruits around in so it was a challenge but the the good thing was and to this day looking Looking back, there were a lot of things that I learned, and it was I was I was lucky to get the positions that I did so early in my career, so I could hit it with the energy and enthusiasm that hadn't been spoiled from bad experiences. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also didn't learn a lot of the lessons that I could have learned coming up through the ranks, especially coping mechanisms when things get stressed out and things are getting heavy. Mm-hmm. But um, one of the things that made NIU successful was because of where we were and what we were trying to do. We had to recruit average athletes or good athletes, but they had outstanding work ethic. Okay. Super, super tough, super heavy duty, blue collar work ethic. You know, one, for example, is PJ Fleck. You know, he, he always comes up in conversations. He yeah. was um, uh, recruited walk on from Sugar Grove ended up being one of our top athletes, played professional ball. Now he's a super successful college football coach. And the guy's a franchise now with Rogue Boat. So and he was a you know, like I said, recruited walk on. And we've had other guys from from that time. Uh, Thomas Hammock was a running back. Now he's back here as the head football coach. Several former NIU football players are back on his coaching staff and uh, you know, Garrett Wolf, Michael Turner Ryan Diem, who was Peyton Manning's right guard, Doug Free, who was down in the Cowboys. All those guys came from the early 2000s when we were recruiting as close as we could, but we weren't recruiting what a lot of recruiters would would consider top-level athletes. I mean, if they were in the area, we were trying to get them without a question, but you couldn't put your money on that. No one can. Mm -hmm. So what we had a good knack for attracting and recruiting was good athletes 
but unstoppable work ethic. And it was a perfect time to have that dungeon monstrosity of a monster factory weight room <laughs> with myself and my assistant at the time, Brian. We were both 25, 26 years old and wanted nothing more to be more than to be successful strength conditioning coaches. So 12, 15 hour days, we had smiles on the entire time doing this. We had coaches that were supporting support staff that put in that kind of effort. And, you know, we were 10 and two, uh, 2000, 2001, 10 and two. That was the year we beat Alabama at Alabama hmm. with Wake Forest and Maryland. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, on, that's, that's just a recipe for perfection and disaster. I mean, that you with that mentality coming into it, the school that has that facility that you grew up in, essentially, and the kids that are supplied, which are a couple of years younger version of you, uh, what more perfect of a place besides working out in UNLV, but what more perfect of a place for you to start your actual professional coaching career? Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree anymore. And by the end, uh, let's see, by when was it? The season of 2001 was when I took over as the head strength coach. And I, I, I couldn't have been more happier to have that opportunity. You know, some things happened here. Some people got released, fired, whatever you want to call it. And I just went in to the athletic director and I said, all I'm asking for is a shot. Hmm. We don't have, you know, the, 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 the resources here are at such a state of rebuilding right now that I feel myself and the assistant there at the time, we can do this. You know, we're not going to come in like some big name coach that's going to demand a new facility and this pay and whatever, you know, we'll take the pay that we're already given. we got the facility that you, you've already, you know, provided for us before our arrival. Let's just do this. Give us a shot. So they made me the interim head strength coach for a few months. And then when the contracts rolled around in July, they offered me the head strength coach position. And I was just like, let's do this. Wow. And how did you, so how did you ever want to leave that then? Or how did you transition into, into the fire service? Well, um, like I said, 12, 15 hour days, myself, one assistant, like most people that are overly grateful to be in a position, they don't ask for more than what's given. Hmm. And it, it came down to, I want to say the season end of 2003. Yeah. End of 2003, uh, beginning of 2004, pretty sure it's the year we went to the Silicon Valley Bowl, if I'm not mistaken. And I just remember at one point towards the end of summer training, prior to that season, we had come in from conditioning one group, just started the other group through their warm-up, and had just broken the uh, the huddle after explaining what the workout consisted of that day. And at the time the old basketball gymnasium didn't have offices. I had a closet that used to store the hockey net and balls and whatever paraphernalia they had in there. But there was kind of like you see in, in like a lot of fitness clubs, they've got the raised platform with the half wall to where when you're sitting at your desk, you can't see ahead, but if you stand up, you can see over the wall. Mm -hmm. They had that right by the front door. When you walk into the gymnasium, I walked up there and sat down. I was sitting there. Elbows on my knees, head looking down at the ground, just exhausted. 
and I looked up slowly and across the platform was my assistant doing the exact same thing. And he just looked at me and shook his head and I did the same thing back and I go, something's got to change. We're grinding. And so it was like two years of six or seven days a week, Sundays going in just to play catch up and play set up for the next week. I mean, it was seven days a week year round. And um, we just, we just got burned out and it, it got to the point where when we were told we had the bowl game, it just hit flat. There was no emotion. I didn't feel achievement. Workouts. I loathed looking at the squat rack, looking at the bench. It, we had just worked ourselves to a point where there was no no joy left. And at that point, I felt like we were still doing our job, but our heart wasn't in it. And I remember going up and talking to Coach Novak one day about the programs uh, and uh, workouts we were going to do before going to the bowl game. And he just looked at me and said, are you all right? And I said, no, coach, um, I'm fried. I don't know what's going on. And he goes, why don't you go talk to somebody? So I was struggling pretty bad. And so I went, uh, probably the, the, the first experience I had going and talking to a counselor, you know, about, you know, depression or whatever else is going on. And, stress effects on people's mental health and ended up getting some help. And that actually led to me when I got invited to go talk to classes throughout the semester about strength conditioning as a career and everything that would always lead into a talk about if you need help, it doesn't hurt to go talk to a mental health professional. You know, if you, if you're grinding, if you're starting to feel like things just don't matter, that's not a sign of weakness. The, the, the biggest problem I had with what was going on is how could I ask for help? How could I be feeling this way? How could I not be strong? I was literally the head strength and conditioning coach. You know, this big waddling powerlifter dude. Everybody's watching me squat X amount of weight, bench X amount of weight, going and doing these competitions here and there. How could I be in a position where I felt weak, where I needed help? This is probably one of the first times in my life where the help and the opportunity that I needed, I didn't want to take. I just couldn't admit this to myself. And it wasn't until I went and got some help and kind of cleared that up that things opened up. The clouds kind of parted. Everything kind of went away. But I, when I used to go around and talk to classes, I became the biggest advocate for mental health professionals for about two years every time I went around and talked to these classes. But it was it was that that grind because at, at that point we had achieved success with our athletic programs. And because of that, a lot of those coaches moved on to bigger programs just because that was their MO from the jump coming in at you. And athlete recruitment, we started getting the higher talent, a little bit lower work ethic athletes. You know, you got, you got a lot more of the pushback of, I never had to work this hard before. Why do I have to do it now? Type things. Yeah. And over the course of the years, it went from a very tight, we're in this together family type environment to a very athletic business feeling environment. And when I had to go into the athletic uh, director every semester with a head coach and justify to them why I want to do what I'm doing with the programs or why I'm not doing the same program as Notre Dame or why won't I do this conditioning program that this coach brought from 
whatever university. I would have to sit there and almost like I was trying to, you know, defend a PhD. Hmm. I would have to sit here and justify all these programs. And so not only are you putting in all this time and effort, evaluating the athletes, testing the athletes, coming up with programming, making it work time-wise, scheduling, working with them on recovery, nutrition, taking into account conditioning, strength training, corrective exercises, putting it all together. And then now you have to go in and try to explain these programs to the entry level intellectual that wants you to justify why you're doing what you're doing, because that's not how they did it at their old school. That started to get really old. <laughs> so it got to the point where around 2006, uh, I was at a staff meeting and I literally said out loud to some people that were sitting by me, I would rather run into burning buildings than sit here with you people anymore. <laughs> Perfect. So, so another light bulb goes off. You know, the first one when I'm five or six years old about Conan the Barbarian, here's another light bulb. Because at the time, Kevin Tejo, who I had mentioned earlier, for years came and trained in my facility. He was the Calvin firefighter that uh, did the combat challenge in he used to always say, you would do really well being a fireman. And I'd be like, that's, that's awesome. But I got my dream job. I'm good. You know, and I'd hear horror stories about the ambulance and everything. I'd be like, no, I'm good. And um, other guys from other fire departments would come in and train with them. And we'd always sit there and talk. And I always thought, you know, I'm getting along with these guys real well. And, you know, the job sounds pretty cool. And yeah, one day I was just sitting there in the staff meeting and I was just like, I would. I would rather run into burning buildings and do this anymore. So I, I knew the end was coming. I was either going to find another job at another school, but that to me, that wasn't really an option at the time. Like I said earlier, there were some things that I didn't learn by becoming a coach so early. And one was the strategy of, you know, looking for jobs at other universities that sound appealing because your situation may change. You know, I enjoyed being part of a rebuilding process. I didn't enjoy being part of the process afterwards where you had to start dealing with all these giant egos from the incoming coaches once you found success. Yeah. So that was, those, those last two years, I was finishing up master's degree in sports management, joined a volunteer fire department, went through academy, got my EMTB, and was testing for departments. Wow. And it's a, you touched on really quickly a, a pretty tough lesson of, yeah, you could have went and looked for another job somewhere, but what, realistically, for how perfect that situation was when you got to NIU, the chances of recreating that would be almost impossible, almost as impossible as the first time it happened. And so, the, yeah. you know, I think it would only be natural that no matter what you went to next would fall flat and you'd be on to the, to the next thing anyways. Sure. And again, kind of like what I said earlier, just because you might fail isn't a reason to not try. Right. But but you're right. You know, the likelihood of the stars coming into alignment like that ever again were probably far from far from none. But you know, that's how people build reputations and you know move on to be sought after to do certain things at certain programs. When when was that that you uh, became part time firefighter and started pursuing that path? That was. Uh, during the uh, end of 2006, early 2007, it was, uh, I remember it was Christmas break 2006. I think we had just came back from um, either a bowl game or the MAC championship. And uh, 
just like, yeah, okay, I got to start pulling the trigger. So, and uh, I was, I was fortunate because uh, I was able to join a department that wasn't uh, in, that wasn't my town, obviously, mm. California volunteer, but um, being a member there, I would go in and help and do whatever we needed to. I obviously couldn't respond to calls, but they were good to me because I just, I explained my situation. You know, I said, Hey, full-time coach here, thinking of switching careers. I really have no way to go to an academy or do anything unless I'm part of either a college program or part of a department and they don't offer that at NIU. So they're like, yeah, we can, we can work with you. So worked with them as much as I could and went through the academy there, got my fire two through them. And once I got that, started testing and I think it was after 11 or 12 tests, I got my first offer and it was, um, beginning of 2008 when I got hired at my first department. Okay. And that's not where you are now, right? Correct. Um, I was on Sterling fire department for a year and nine months. And that was during the, the, uh, recession of 2008 ish time. And lucky me went from being a, being a division one head strength coach to a probationary firefighter to laid off. So, so answer the first time in my life where I wasn't too sure about the decisions I was making. <laughs> yeah. Calling up UNLV again. Yeah, everything up to that point just seemed to fall fall into line. You know, UNLV, NIU, lifting, all this stuff, blah blah blah. Just mm -hmm. fell into line, and then here, let me make a sharp right turn and see how this road's going. Oh, <laughs> it's a little bumpy. Yeah. Did you? I mean, did you guys see that coming down the pipeline? Was there a little bit of advance warning, or was it just kind of? I know things around there were very abrupt for a lot of departments. Yeah. Um, pretty much right after I got hired were the rumors about layoffs because they had just got a new city manager and you know how good those things go. Mm -hmm. So almost immediately after getting hired, I started testing again. Okay. Just to put it out there. Yeah. And towards the end, I want to say, I don't recall how close it was to the layoff. We actually had a, had a rural fire. And we were, uh, me and another member of the department were moving up two and a half around to the, it was these farmhouses off a dirt road that had like the whole uh, ditch next to the road. And then the house was sitting like eight feet above the level of everything else. Anyway, it was, it was raining. We were moving up two and a half around. I'd slipped and caught myself on my right arm and like hyperextended and really jacked up my right elbow. So that actually led to elbow surgery hmm. a few months later. So not only was I laid off, but I was also trying to rush the recovery from an elbow surgery while I was out testing for, I think, I think the last time I checked, I know it was over 20, I want to say 24, but in 11 months I tested for like 20 some odd departments. Wow. So all this stuff going on at the same time, just, just grinding. But again, at, at that point in time, kind kind of found purpose in this forward track of I need to recover from this hmm. you know even if I possibly made the wrong decision at this time I'm in a hole and we got to move we got to keep moving forward so worked on the elbow the best I could with physical therapy and just let it recover tested like crazy and um, testing really wasn't that that difficult because then tests were very plentiful and for unemployment you had to do x amount of things a week showing that you were trying to find work so i could use applications and test dates and things for qualifying for unemployment so 
so yeah, so the, again, it was a pretty crazy uh, time. Went from being a division one head strength coach to a fireman to laid off to unemployment checks. Wow. While I'm trying to recover from elbow surgery so I could get hired by another department if the offer comes. What was your downtime between layoff and, and your next hiring? Um, it wasn't very long. I want to say, I want to say the elbow recovery I did in 16 weeks and okay. the layoff was seven months. Wow. So four months, four months from cutting the elbow to being cleared and seven months totally being laid off. So roughly 20 tests later, right? You land another job, which is pretty fortunate. Very fortunate. Yeah. Some of the tests, I mean, you can imagine after, uh, after one offer comes in, they all start coming in. But mm. um, one of the tests I went to, there were 650 people sitting in a triple wide gymnasium of high school. You know, yeah. people were, people were looking for jobs. So you had to try to be uh, towards the cream of the crop. And again, that was another opportunity for me to, for me to be competitive. And I was, I was eating it up after <laughs> After that many tests, you could go sit down and you're like, oh, it's the IO solutions. I remember all these answers, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So, did you stay in that brought me back to testing? I know. IO solutions. Oh, yep. oh. I, I can still figure out uh, the train moving at X miles per hour over this distance, how long it's going to take. Those questions drove me crazy. As you say, you can count it. You count the uh, teeth on the gear and tell me which way the third one's going to turn. Yeah, exactly. And Beautiful. I put a guy in the purple sweatshirt walking away from the warehouse with the smoke coming out the second story window. Holy cow, man. <laughs> That's awesome. Funny wow. how those things imprint in your memory. <laughs> Holy cow. So, so okay, now so, this department, the one that picked you up seven months afterwards, that's the one you're still at today. Correct. I'm going to make the Hills Fire Protection District. Yeah, and that just, that just timed out perfectly to where right – uh, right when they were offering me was right when I got cleared from the elbow. Wow. So it's worked out really well. And that's what, I mean, not, a, not exactly right then, but that eventually led to, to us becoming training partners. I mean, that probably the biggest, the biggest accomplishment in your career was showing up to, uh, the training tower at my department and, and uh, <laughs> dragging a dummy on the, on the asphalt for half an hour. Oh, the, oh, oh, you mean training with the 2012 Grand National Championship? <laughs> not a big deal. <laughs> not, not a big deal. <laughs> not a big deal. Yeah. So coming out of one of the real low points, uh, being the part where laid off, had to get rehired, rehab the elbow, all that stuff. Uh, when I got hired on Algonquin, I was just ecstatic to have a full-time position on a fire protection district. Mm -hmm. uh, Everybody there was was really really good to me. Uh, it seemed like there was there was a lot of opportunity there, and I was you know being told I was going to go to medic school when the next class started, and you know this this that and the other. And one of the frustrating things on my first department was the lack of opportunity, just mm -hmm. where where that department was at that time, and old administration and things like that, and. This department had, it seemed like, all these opportunities for special teams and classes and getting paid to go to paramedic school, and it was, it was great, you know. And like we spoke about earlier, it's hard to be a prophet in your own home, and I said it was hard to build professional relationships on top of personal ones. Well, at this department, I was coming in as, you know, the former strength coach, a guy that got laid off fought to earn his way back onto a full-time department somewhere. So a lot of the relationships that I built when I first got there were pretty solid because 
they figured I wasn't just another slappy that went to every consortium there was, and my name just came up in the drawing. You know, I was really clawing uh, to get my way back to a desirable position where I was gainfully employed in a career that I really wanted to be a part of. So um, towards the end of that first year was probably one of the first times I ever really felt personal loss when um, I lost one of my Rottweilers or my uh, matriarch of my Rottweiler rescues. For, for a while now, I've been rescuing dogs, mainly Rottweilers, Rottweiler mixes. And it was the first time I, I, I'd ever lost one of them for somebody ready to put down a dog. So it just kind of went to kind of a sad spot for a little time there and a little bit of self pity and just loss and all those things you uh, feel when that happens. And a friend of mine had an online health and wellness program um, just geared around wellness, just learning about nutrition and reorganizing life, recalibrating things and getting back at it. So at the time I was um, out at a station that um, the call volume was lower than the other ones and just had a lot of opportunity to meal prep, work out and focus on medic school. So during that first part of the program, it was a 20 week program. It was like one of those fitness boot camps. dropped uh, 45 pounds in 20 weeks. So I went from a fat mat to a not fat mat. <laughs> and just through those workouts and putting myself through workouts, I used to put the athletes through, just felt like I needed to find a new focus, a new physical fitness goal. You know, if I'm going to be in this career, what can I do that's going to not only prove to myself, but show other people that uh, I'm doing whatever I can to be uh, physically capable to do whatever this job throws at you. Hmm. You know, a, a lot of people focus on skills and education, and both of which are very perishable if you don't practice them, which we all know physical fitness is that way also but it doesn't seem like the emphasis is really put on that too often so it was a point of pride that i not only came back from possibly career-ending injury with the elbow injury to uh, get cleared for work but then became gainfully employed again as a full-time fireman and then had this physical transformation where i dropped all that weight got back in shape and wanted to take another crack at the firefighter combat challenge so it was through uh, a member on the department that knew Dan that I got in contact with him and I came out for that uh, one workout before we went out to, I think it was Cedar Rapids. But uh, yeah, 2012, the year you guys won the Grand National Championship was when that may have been the year I just did the one. It was like a hair over three minutes and I was just like, oh my God, I lost all this weight. I got in shape and it's still this hard. Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> so that was yeah that was towards the end of the season and then off season just focused on paramedic school and training and trained with you guys a lot met up with evan quite a few times and yeah. um met up with the waukegan team a couple times and mm -hmm. that uh next year came out i think it had five or six that year but came out with nice. uh i think it went my time went from like a 307 to a 230 my first run and by the end of the year i got it down to a 208 and that's when i re-aggravated the uh the old l5s1 so i had to pump the brakes a little bit yeah yeah there was some some fun times man i mean from our perspective we we had virtually no um knowledge of your history you know like i said i, I knew you were a strength coach for niu in some capacity didn't know exactly what 
Uh, I knew you were a power lifter in some capacity, didn't know exactly what, but I knew that whenever you and Tom Mackey showed up to practice, it was going to be just relentless. It was just going to be, and Dan loved it. I mean, Dan was right in the same work ethic as you guys and me and Tim and Shay loved it because we would get roped up and that's our natural, <laughs> that <was great. laughs> um, that, that's our natural training philosophy anyways, is just kind of go for it. Yeah. And uh, having you guys push the pace, it was great. But at the same time, you looked at it and you're like, oh, God, like this. Okay, I guess this is going to be a little bit longer and a little bit more difficult than I expected it to be. Yeah. And uh, like I said, amazing times and, and and awesome things that came out of it. But yeah, every single one of those days was like, God damn. It. <laughs> like you just knew that. You're like, okay, it was, it was like the one more game. You're like, okay, we'll do one more. Yeah. And you get that done with that one. And we're all sitting there like half vomiting. <laughs> Somebody was like, well, maybe just like one more. Like, All right, I gotta go. I gotta go. This is it. It's noon. Okay, we started at eight a.m. and it's noon. I'm in. Yeah, it was that was a good time. I just the hair just kind of stood up on the back of my neck a little bit, thinking about yeah, that's uh, out there at the tower. Yeah, Mackie would show up, and I always liked to uh, you know joke around with Shay because he was the other big dumb animal out there with me. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was it was a good time, and yeah, there was no there were there were two gears, you know, it was stop, not your turn or, you know, darn near self-destruct, but uh, it, yeah. was, it was good. And that was, that was the intensity that I was looking for again in my own personal performance where I found that, that, you know, performance based value in myself. And, you know, it went from previously, you know, the, the one rep max and a power lifting meet of, whatever the weight was and the psych up and the lead up and the completion of that, to, you know, now something that actually looked athletic, mm. you know, it wasn't just, you know, go pick it up, put it down. It was, Hey, let's do something. And Oh, by the way, while you're doing it, you're wearing the stuff you're on air, you know, and being even that was one thing that I really thought was solid about the combat challenge. If you go and you finish the course, you're part of it. Mm. It doesn't matter what your time right. is. I mean, if you want to be competitive, yeah, it matters what your time is. But what percentage of the industry actually trains and competes in something like right. that? No, it's it's very ex exclusive. Nothing else than just the the availability and the willingness to to do it is a very small percentage of of nationwide firefighters. I mean, it's and you're right. It is one of those things where we we still have relationships with some of the crew from. I don't think any of them are still the same crew, but. Um, that's actually half the reason I'm not interested in doing it again is because that <laughs> atmosphere when we did it that year and the years before that was so awesome. Uh, it really was mm -hmm. like hanging out with, with one big team, like the crew, the, the administrators of it. Um, and you just see the same people so many times it was awesome. And now when you go back that, you know, they wouldn't recognize you or know your, your team or your name from anything, but, um, yeah, yeah that was a, that was a really fun year that I never ever want to do it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah Gross. it was it was good time. So you have I mean Gross. you have a um an amount of knowledge and a source of knowledge from so many areas that uh, I would say nobody realistically because of the specific circumstances you went through the environments you grew up in both uh in your like actual youth and also your strength and strength and conditioning youth. So what would you say we're going to turn this now to a little bit of question and answer time. Um and we can always rope back around to uh, more stories and stuff without a doubt. Sure. What, but what are some things that as we look at 
our industry, the term tactical athlete and athlete is thrown around all the time. I mean, we constantly try to compare ourselves to athletes and I have my own opinions on this that you heard at one of my talks. Um, mm-hmm. But let's just pretend we are athletes for a second. What sure. are some lessons that you think are applicable from the D1 college world of strength and conditioning to the fire service? Um, I'd say pr- probably just the, the emphasis on physical development along with all the skills. I mean, to say that um, one has more skill than the other probably would, wouldn't be fair. I mean, they're just different types of skills. Athletes have to memorize as many plays and as many sports-specific skills as we have to remember things, you know, tactics and strategies about the fire ground or EMS. So the one thing that I thought about earlier when I was thinking about this was in athletics, in the higher level you go all the way to professional athlete, you're in a constant state of evaluation and earning your place at the table. Mm. You know, if the career we're in is indeed a profession, which it is, and we're professionals in this industry, we should be held to standards. And those standards are held in uh, CEUs for a paramedic license, for training hours to meet NFPA and to meet department requirements. We, besides passing our annual physical, we really don't have any phys- fit, physical fitness standards to gauge where our guys are at or set expectations for people to work to, Hmm. you know, if, if people had to requalify and re-earn a place at the table to be engineer or be backstep or be on the truck or, you know, whatever position you want to say, if every now and then it was a evaluation and are you physically capable of doing this job to the nth degree, which we should be able to do, that's what the public expects. If you can't fit through the window, if you can't climb up the ladder, if you don't have the work capacity to go in, do a VEIS, find somebody, pull them to the window and not be so out of breath that you can't talk on the radio, you should never be sitting back step. You should never be in a position where you have to make a grab. And so, and that leads into the next question. And it's a fantastic explanation of it. I agree with that hundred percent. And uh, that sounds lofty, right? Because we always talk about the VEIS being so rare and you'll probably never have one in your career, but it's the worst case scenario where you, you have to be at least mentally prepared to do. So that's the obvious fight against it, right? It was, well, what are the chances? What are the chances I have to do that? So I agree, but you also know the pushback that comes with it. Is that a change that you would like to see made though, is some sort of annual evaluation tool or um, of course the argument is always punitive versus non-punitive, but is that a change you'd like to see in the fire service? It's a change that I'd like to see from within most likely, um, you know, because it, it would be basically drawing lines in the sand for some type of performance standard. It's probably never going to happen, but it would be nice to see the trend in training catch on. I think it would, it, it would, it would take like a kind of a culture shift where it's not just, you know, doing the 14 10s and just doing certain drills to remember how to pull an advance hose. Um, you know, some of the drills, uh, 
we do on my shift is we'll do certain physical tasks and then at the end of it mask up and go on air if anything just to revisit how uncomfortable and how fatigued you can be doing physical requirements that we may see there on the fire ground but then have the wherewithal to stop breathe settle your thoughts settle your body and be able to do a skill like mask up with your gloves on and get ready and do it expeditiously enough to actually you know have something come in that situation so we've done ladder climbs and you know guys on my crew they're competitive they're in good shape so now we ended up doing uh you know aerial ladder climbs for time come down mask up do the slap your hand type thing and we'll do other ones where we'll do veis searches and as the guys get in better shape and the skills get more refined it it evolves you know kind of like the throw the ladder mask up go in do the veis find the dummy drag it to the window do the radio command and then it evolves to where you start to give the radio command and say hey i need two people on the ladder so then other people now are grabbing ladders and so i i, I honestly think it'll have to be like a trend in training to where assessing people's physical fitness may be a side product of it hmm. have you had much much pushback from people who travel or you're on a different crew for the day or uh, people rotate through your crew and, and they're not in that same headspace to be doing that stuff? No, I mean, we, we don't ever, um, you know, it's, it's a good environment to where we're always encouraging. And if somebody doesn't want to do it because they're on another crew and they're just visiting because overtime or mandatory to fill in or whatever, we don't, we don't, we don't give any pushback. It's, it's one thing to try to in, influence people through, pressure and you know giving them giving them heck if they don't if they don't do it but it's another thing for outsiders and we've we've had plenty of people that have uh, you know filled overtime or been mandatory or whatever join us in our in, in the drills just because they see how much fun we're having yeah it, it sucks you get tired it hurts but it's a point of pride hmm. so it's kind of like doing the combat challenge with everybody's going to hurt it's just how 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 far can you push your red line before you block yeah. and it's knowing it's it's being comfortable being in a familiar uncomfortable hmm. you know and knowing where your red line is so when you do have to push that level of effort when you do start to get exhausted and you do raise that level of fatigue you know how hard you can push it and maybe recover while you're adjusting or doing something you, you, you have to do. But, um, hmm. you know, I think part of the, uh, part of the argument, like you said, is the, well, it's never going to happen or it's not very likely to happen. Well, no, but knowing what kind of effort you could give redlining and not bonk and keep your wherewithal mentally and learn how to not lose your shit and recover through breathing and movement may not specifically fit what's going to happen based on this evolution, but that mindset will. And it's the, the ships rise with the tide, right? I mean, that's, that's usually my, my comeback or my rebuttal for that comment about, oh, it's never going to happen. Or what are the chances are, what are the things that we do most often? And how would you feel if you were more physically able and more comfortable to do those things day in and day out? You know, we don't have to look at the extreme circumstance every time. Mm -hmm. We can just say, what if your baseline was that much better that the things that are taxing now 
if they're a four out of 10, what if they were a one out of 10? Cause you were mm-hmm. that much better, you know, and, and, uh, the high intensity training, like you're talking about can get you that result. Um, but I think that's a point of congratulations for you. Cause I think that's, I mean, that's a lesson of the, the inclusion work you've done with your crew and the familiarity and the comfort level you built around it is something that I struggled with big time uh, sure. earlier on because, you know, it was, it was not my way or the highway. I didn't really have a way or an influence, but um, allowing people to find it on their own while you go about it and continue to make it look attractive is not something I was very good at. And sure. I think that that's one of the areas where your background in dealing with student athletes, dealing with lifting teams, dealing, being able to watch uh, athletes come through with other professional coaches. That's probably something you were able to pick up along the way that, that directly transferred to your success now in your fire department. Sure. You know, and you know, as well as I do that it's, you know, uh, addressing the issue or suggesting things that uh, the less confrontational or abrasive, you can be with it, uh, with the right personalities. It's, uh, sometimes goes a lot smoother, you know, and, uh, on that, on that same note a while back, um, for a while, I'd say five or six months, we had such a good, um, shift and station buy into the workouts that we had everybody in our station down in the weight room, doing an organized program together at the same time. And we would have eight people down there at one time, literally everyone that was working in the station that day down there in the workout room doing mm-hmm. something program. And it got that way through, I don't want to say peer pressure. Cause I don't, I don't think it's the right word. I, I just mm-hmm. think it was, it, people just saw it as being a positive experience. So, uh, I think it was two years ago. Um, really good friend of mine that's on my crew. We went to Red Under Fire and you hear stories about Red Under Fire and how treacherous, uh, treacherous it is and all that stuff. And we were, we were looking forward to it because he was creeping up on 40 and I had just crossed over 40 and I'm like, yeah, we gotta, we gotta do something just to not feel old. So <laughs> we, uh, we started working out when we were getting off shift, getting up and doing, uh, variations of the leg Craig workout. I got from you guys back in the day. So <laughs> him and I would get up and start doing cranks. And then our old BC would get up and do it with us. And then some of the newer part-time guys would come down. There'd be mornings where at 445, we would have five or six people in the station stumbling downstairs half asleep to start leg cranks by five o'clock to be done by 545, to be showered and out by six to be ready to turn over the station by seven. And it was, wow. it was awesome. And then we would start the evening before 3.30 workouts, approximately, of course, assuming that the whole work thing doesn't get in the way. <laughs> but we would plan the afternoon workout, and it originally started with uh, Frank and I. And then we just said, hey, if any other, other guys want to join, come on down. It's scalable. We're not doing anything heavy. You know, it's just a whole bunch of stuff that's going to make you tired in a logical order for logical reasons done the right way. And you know, scalable, go up, go down, do whatever you need to do. I could always substitute workouts rather quickly for them. So it wasn't that big of a deal. And, uh, you know, one turned into two, turned into three, turned into everybody for months at a time. Yeah. That's a, that's, that's a great lesson to learn, man. I'm, and I'm talking personally, um, especially as, uh, we've become so isolated recently, but 
as this thing starts to open back up again to kind of restart that with a new approach to it, I think is going to be really beneficial for a lot of people. Sure. Um, what, is there any, is there any final lesson or final thing that you like to give your guys or, or um, a way that you would end your team meetings that, that kind of wrapped everything up? I know it was all week to week dependent and class to class dependent, obviously, but um, is there anything you want to leave us with as a, as a general notion? At, at the time that I was coming up uh, and learning the ropes with powerlifting and, and getting competitive, Michigan, specifically like the Metro Detroit area, was, was one of the places to be as far as where you want to compete and the quality of the competitions that, that we put on. There was one that was called uh, the Wolverine Open. And early 99 or late 98, I can't remember. I hate to say it, that was a long time ago, but it was. And I was going for the junior world record bench press in the 198 pound weight class. And there was another mat in Detroit trained at the Motor City Barbell Club. Good friend of mine, we still talk about this to this, to this day. Uh, There's one of the stories that I told at, told at my father's funeral actually, was he was by far a much better lifter than me, world-class, world, world champion totals, just uh, super guy, super lifter, much higher level. And um, so we're both in the same weight class, and I knew as far as totals, I didn't have a shot. His squat was hundreds of pounds more than mine. But bench press was kind of my thing, and I wanted that world record. And when it came to the bench press competition, we opened up fairly close. I think at the time the record was 478 at 198. And we both up and up. I think I opened up at like 460. He went 465. And the the circle of powerlifting was so tight. I mean, it was big, but everybody knew everybody and knew their numbers and what they were going to do and who was going to be fun to watch and who wasn't that enough people were there and we were on a, on uh, the same team together for a while. And I came back to town the place was, I have it on tape and if I find it, I'm going to show you sometime because it seems almost like Jerry Springer show exciting. It was, it was everybody was just going crazy during this time. So I opened up with a weight. He jumped me by five. I went to another weight. He jumped me by five. So at this point we went like 460, 465, 470, 475. I went to 485 to break the world record, locked it out. I got two reds. They said it was uneven extension. And I was just like, oh, he came out and did like a 495 and got it anyways. So I even, even if I wouldn't, would have got the lift, I still wouldn't have the world record. Okay. Cause I, I just got beat. But I, I remember that this was because it was one of my last meets as a junior lifter. Now I had to go in the open class. I had literally trained for, years at one point just wanting to compete and then compete at a high level and then oh i can win stuff hey i can set world records finally culminating at this one meet i just remember i was devastated like crushed of course i go back in the warm-up room and like all big tough guys do just weeped <laughs> through stuff <laughs> got got all got all belligerent and uh the other guys that were there from the powerlifting team from from Western were just kind of like, let's just let this pressure release for a while before we try talking anything into them. So my dad was standing back there, and uh, after he saw me calm down a little bit, you know, he 
comes over and, you know, it's just kind of like that un, unspoken thing, whether it's standing next to, you know, a guy at the department or at the gym or after the competition, sometimes you don't have to say anything, you know, it's just an acknowledgement of what just happened. And Hey, I'm physically showing you through body language that I'm here for you, but I'm not letting anything come out of my mouth because nothing is going to be right. right now. And I remember he looked at me and he goes, well, Sometimes your best just isn't good enough, son. And at the time, I didn't take it the wrong way, but it sat with me for a while. And, and uh, I thought about it, and it was one of those things that you have to accept. But that's no reason not to give your best, not to go 100%, not to go full speed. And he didn't say it in a way that was, you know, quit crying quit being a baby or, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. It's only a world record attempt. You know, he was, he, he, he just said it in a way that sometimes dads take the tone. Hey, it's all right. He was acknowledging that I did my best left it on the platform, but in life, sometimes your best just isn't good enough. And I used to tell that to all the athletes at NIU at the beginning of the off season and towards the season. And I'm saying, I'm not saying this as an excuse to not win. Don't even try to confuse that, but you better always try to be the hardest worker in the room and on the field or on the court or on the mat. But if you are the hardest worker, you do fail at full speed. Like you said, you do give a hundred percent. You have to know that failure, it wasn't really a failure. You know, as a, you, you achieved the highest level that you could. And just based on the level of competition, it wasn't there. But that's not a reason to not give it your, your best effort. And if there's one thing you can be known for, you, you may never be known for being the guy that made the grab. You may never be known for being the most aggressive truckie or backstep or the best lieutenant or knowing the name of every instructor down at IFSI because you took so many classes. If there's something you can be known for, be known as being the hardest worker in the room and that you will never give up on your people. It's powerful stuff, man. That's powerful stuff. Yeah. Bring it all back to the people. And, and just like every great strength coach, you, you make it about everybody else but yourself, right? So I think that fits perfectly yeah. with your story and fits perfectly with everything you told us. And thank you, man. Thanks for, uh, thanks for yeah, man. everything. I mean, thanks for pushing us in 2012 and, and, uh, defeating us morally and physically. So we could, <laughs> so we could go out and do fairly well, uh, far too many times. Uh, thanks for your friendship. And then most importantly, thanks for today. But, uh, I can't wait to see what's in store for, for all of us as we go forward, me, you, Annette, and the rest of the people we, we talk and hang out with. I think that we're really entering a, a pretty cool time in the fire service when it comes to strength and conditioning and networking and physical fitness and, and overall wellness. So I'm, I'm pretty pumped for, for the next couple of months and the next couple of years, especially. So Matt, if the people want to get a hold of you, where should they find you on social media or your email? What do you want to give them? Uh, email would be the best right now. I really don't have too many uh, ways to get in contact with me. It's kind of by design, but uh, <laughs> uh, you could just email mmangum1 at comcast.net. That's one of the ones that I use that just doesn't have a nice, long, complicated 
email address to it and it's spelled M-A-N-G-U-M. Everybody ever has ever called me Magnum, but it's spelled M-A-N-G-U-M. So mmangum1 at comcast.net and uh, I'll be looking for it. Awesome, dude. Thanks again, man. This was awesome. And I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk to you aside from this and then back here again in the future, no doubt. Sure, absolutely. It was great.